some lady walks in and gets the overhead projector out and I'm like, she knows her shit. You know what? That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Someone also, because when someone is demonstrating the fact that they're walking through it, there's also a degree of confidence that's there. I will show you how this works. One, two, three, four, five. You're like, I trust her. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Cypher Skin. James. Use my true name. James, James AJ Heathers. Oh, that's not what I was hoping you'd come up with something more epic. But as usual, on your quest to be forever normal, you've disappointed me. Ja- How ja- are you, Daniel, the could, disappointment? Could, you're looking sweatier than usual, James. What's, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. Well, see, I'm looking at your face for the first time in a fortnight <laughs> and I come out in a rash. No, the, the gyms are just open. I haven't been to the gym 14 fucking months. Wow. And now I'm back in and I just cannot stop. So I'm trying very hard not to sweat into my Patreon-supported microphone because I appreciate the things our listeners do for <laughs> us. <laughs> so I'm trying real hard not to fuck up the AV equipment here. Yeah, man, full of energy. Good stuff. How are you? Well, our, our local gyms are not open, so yeah, I've had to. Oh, rush. Yeah, hopefully it'll be. Oh, uh, it'll. It's a good thing. Good thing your opinions get a lot of exercise, don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, I mouth off every day, mate. That's the spirit. <laughs> that is the spirit. Speaking of um, mouthing off, James, today, mm. today, it's a Q and A episode. I put the call out. Uh, my favorite. And as per usual, I have declined the opportunity to hear them beforehand so people can experience the full depth and breadth of my ignorance. <laughs> hot, You've hot. heard them, of course. You had to make sure hot there was audio in working. them. So, yeah, yeah. So, you having reflective thoughts, but I'm having unreflective thoughts. Another word for unreflective, Dan, a synonym is dull. So let's see how dull I can be. <laughs> it's what the uh, it's what the punters love. Okay, we're going to play <laughs> the punters. The punters. Yeah, be slightly more Australian, would you? Go on. Yeah, play okay. the fuckers. Go. I on. am going to play the first one from friend of the show, Sam Westwood. Hi, Dan. Hi, James. Love the podcast. So my question is: Should we require universities to justify overhead costs? So these include costs for heating, electricity. So overheads, as you know, can inflate the costings on grants. And this actually means sometimes that seeking funding from charities is not an option as they often don't cover overheads. It also means that small pots of money, which are usually won by early career researchers, don't go very far. This is a particularly pressing question for teaching-focused universities, which generally view research as a net cost and so have punishingly high overheads of 20 and even 40%, if not higher. Um, It would be nice to see a bit of transparency about where the money actually goes, or at least to hear possible solutions to help ECRs onto the ladder in building their own line of research with a shoestring budget. Son of a bitch, that's a good question. That is that is easily like for we, we like unexplored academic and scientific issues, Daniel. I would say that's a fair assessment of what we generally talk about. And as far as the size of the problem versus the degree to which this is discussed in public, that has got to be about the best fucking question we have ever had. 
on how indirect costs are managed by universities. Um, I have a variety of opinions on this, as might be expected. Um, first thing, obviously, uh, that's a situated thing. As far as, as as far as I can tell from the accent, I was super disappointed. It, 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 this is Westwood, and he didn't go, it's your boy Westwood, like that idiot from the radio, but he's probably had that his whole life, so never mind. Um, <laughs> indirect costs here. Okay, the way that they're set here in general, as far as I'm aware, is a agreement between the university and federal government where they come up with basically a cost justification of how much everything, like how, how much money everything uh, uh, costs to support. So basically there's a formal agreement between the university and the government and the government agrees if you get a million dollars, your indirect costs are a certain percentage of your direct costs. Now, that is pretty stable in a lot of different places. The amount universities claim in indirect costs does uh, change rapidly. Um, I have heard of universities here having somewhere between 22, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, 60 to 70% of direct costs. Yeah, I think that's for like the, the universities in, in Boston that, are, that have a presence in the, like the Longwood medical area where the rent is really high because they're competing with pharma companies and shit like that. It may have some kind of justification, but it's also an appalling amount of money if you put together the full pot of the grant stuff and where it goes. Now, why do people talk about this more often? One, a lot of the time people feel like there's absolutely nothing they can do about it. Most academics don't get interested in accounting issues and on actual uh, like governmental issues that uh, are about like how all of this is established. It's shit that's handled by deans and accountants and most people just nope out of it and then complain when a percentage cost turns up, all right? So that's usually why it's not discussed. And of course, anyone who's in that position uh, don't have the same freedom that we do, Daniel, to be agitating little shitheads. Right. So next thing. Um, what Sam says is absolutely true. This has happened to me. It's happened to a lot of other people that I know. Uh, someone turns up and they say, here's an endowment for this amount of money. It's a hundred grand or 50 grand or 12 grand or some fixed amount of money. Uh, you apply for it, you're accepted for it. And the university says, we want indirect costs. And you say, well, I don't know where you're going to get that from because this funding mechanism does not pay indirect costs the same way that the federal government does. Uh, they only pay the money for the thing. Uh, and there is a budget. So if we're asking for 100 grand or something, a lot of the time that means you submitted a budget that you know, and it's magically come up to $99,874. And you're like, oh, we'll, we'll leave the extra $26 on the table. We'll just, just slide that on. We, we don't want to be greedy here, right? Yeah, it's like the same false fucking budget accounting that happens in every governmental thing everywhere. It just so happens that your costs are incredibly close to the, the yeah. Every now and again, you see an honest grant where someone asks for exactly like $323,000 out of a $500,000 scheme. You're like, oh my God, an honest man. We should have him stuffed. Um, no one will ever believe we found one in the wild, but whatever, I digress. So uh, universities a lot of the time will basically say, well, if you've got that money, we're taking our indirect cost and this indirect cost agreement out of your direct costs, which fucks your budget up completely because you might be saying something like, I want to support a graduate student for uh, nine paid months or a PhD program supported for four paid years. Um, or I have a certain amount of equipment and material costs, and that's budgeted for. 
And then the university says, I want 35% on top. The charity says, go fuck yourself. The university comes to you and says, uh, 35% on top. We're reducing your direct costs, which ruins your budget if you want the money in the first place. Now, when that comes to a small amount of money where a budget is really tight, it really affects your ability to win and accept money in the first place. And that's what Sam's talking about here. Uh, I would apologize for explaining all of that in full, but I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people listening who have not encountered this before, but it is reasonably common. So there's a couple of things that you really need to do. The first on a human level is you need to get to know the people who are in your grand office and what they're actually doing. It can't be someone at the end of an email. Yeah. And I'm not saying like go around, give them a bottle of wine and a bunch of flowers and tug them off. That's not what I'm saying. You need to have a working relationship with the people who are handling your money. You can't just show up once every six months and go, I don't want to give you cash. Yeah? Every organization runs and thrives on the basis of the interrelationships of the people within it. There's only so much that systems can handle, and a lot of it is human-scale shit. So you have to make some kind of effort to get tight with these people. Not in the hope that, well, if I could convince them that I'm fantastic, maybe I can fuck them over on the money. No, you need to be in a point where you can have an honest conversation about what this represents to someone who has the ability to do anything about it. Because in a lot of cases that I've heard, and this happened not a, a grant that was at work rather than one that I was on, I think. Um, because it was a small grant and the university was sort of like, mm, 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 they just waived the indirects. A lot of the time they can do that. It's perfectly possible for them to do that if you explain where the money's going. Because look, think of it this way. If you've got a million dollars coming in and you're claiming, uh, let's say, what it sounds like, 30%. You're claiming 30% indirect, it's $300,000. You've got $12,000 coming in. They're not going to Skype about four grand because that, I mean, in, in a situation like that, it's about 1.5% or thereabouts of the other money that they're talking about. It's a marginal cost, and that's not how indirect costs work anyway. Now, here's the really complicated part that I don't fully understand. I have read serious analyses by people who work in university finance uh, and do university library budgets who will assert that when they do their costings, indirect costs don't even cover the relevant indirect costs and that they are actually using all that money and more to be able to do the support things that they've got. Now, I don't know if that's true, that that I suspect that is entirely about how you do the accounting in the first place. So when they do something like that, they include shit like uh, like depreciation on the cost of the whole building, even if you're not in it because it's part of the department or some shit like that. It could very well be a creative accounting function, or they could just be like doing an aggregate money of indirect in and an aggregate money of costs out, a lot of which you're not responsible for and go, look, A is bigger than B. There's a whole bunch of ways that that could uh, come about. Um, the, the information, I suspect that the information that Sam's asking for and saying, should universities be more transparent about this? I suspect that information in some real sense does not really exist. But if it does, it would have to be aggregated from a whole bunch of different sources in a way that it doesn't now. Because you're saying, here is the money that we're bringing in on an aggregate level. I got a million dollars, the university got 300 grand extra. Where he's like, well, what is the cost of you 
being in the building and maintaining the IT support and fucking keeping the lights on and making sure the sewers run and paying for the security guards and paying for the fucking bloke at the lunch counter, uh, I, I sincerely doubt that it's costed like that. I suspect it's costed at an aggregate level over the entire university. And then it goes into one form one time that is like in some obscure back office. And that goes into the agreement at a completely umbrella university level that that university has with the government about what they can and can't justify. So I don't know if we, we're used to asking for data. We're used to, especially on this fucking podcast, we're used to saying, give us stuff, with, give us the details, show us how it works. And I really don't know if – I'm sure there's more that you could find out about how that works. But in general, when it comes to your best chance of being able to navigate this is to find whoever is doing that budgeting stuff and to level with them and to be human because they would never – if you like the uh, – there's one additional scenario I haven't talked about. A lot of charities, are non-profits, uh, other non-governmental government, organizations of different structures, they will sometimes say, I've seen this in a few grants, uh, we'll pay up to 15% indirect costs. That's pretty Or up to Europe. 10% indirect costs or some shit like that. Yeah, because they don't want their money going to the fucking university. They want, they want to pay you to do the work. They don't want to have an argument about who's paying for the fucking fluoro tubes in the ceiling. But they also right? recognize that this is an important issue though. So it's uh, yes, 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 so they do. But what happens is when they do that and they're going, well, here's your fucking fig leaf. Here's most of the way towards that. It, at that point in time at the start, it becomes a negotiation with the people themselves, right? So the other element of this is talking to these people before you submit a grant scheme and try to get someone to commit in writing to the fact that they're not going to jack you out of the fucking paltry amount of money that's coming in for a small ECR support project and then get them to commit to that, right? Uh, and if they don't, look, you're going to have to – oh, there's so many fucking sirens today. Why does everyone have to burn to death at such volume? Bastards. Um, you, you, you can, you can get out in front of this to some degree. Um, it is not easy. And I think the primary drag factor is a lot of people in academic, whatever. It's like one of the reasons that you get into being in an academic department is because you don't want to deal with like the dumb shit of the world. I feel exactly the same kind of tiresome attitude. I mean, I have to do budgets now. I have to do all sorts of like back office stuff, you know? It's hard. Organizational stuff is hard. And a lot of people are like, I don't want to do that. I want to think about cool ideas and do my research and talk to other people who are interested in my cool ideas. And I'm not interested in having a discussion about 15 versus 20% with some back office functionary fuck um, who in an ideal world wouldn't exist anyway and is, is, is part of the 500% increase in university administration over the last 25 years. These people are parasites and I don't care. Now, that's somewhat true and a little bit funny and also quite a lot unfair. Uh, there's obviously a balancing act of like what needs to come from where, how you handle it, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, getting involved with back office shit as an academic to a certain degree is going to pay huge dividends for your ability to handle these aspects of your careers. And also think of all the people who aren't going to do that and all the people in your department who can't because they have the fucking personality of a rattlesnake, right? It's, it's, 
it's not just a sort of like this represents a raw personal advantage, but I mean, also it's the right thing to do to have good relationships with the people that you work with, right? So that's a really long answer, but that was a really good question. And I've left you no time whatsoever to speak, Dan, but I also feel that there's a certain correctness in doing that. <laughs> Look, uh, I think the last thing you said is, is really important in that I really appreciate the people that go around when you start a new position actually going around and introducing new people to to all the back office folks to actually go this is the person that does all the finance stuff this is the administrative stuff uh it, it makes life a lot easier but look it was what, what i find really interesting is that we've always had this sense or i've always gotten this sense that um the administration is like encouraging you to apply i mean they're obviously encouraging you to apply for any sort of grant but there's extra encouragement for certain types of grants. And when you really dig down, it's because those are the ones which actually do provide a lot of additional costings. Because like you said before, at least locally, there is agreements going, we understand that um, a a PhD student costs this much. And this is the same across Norway. It's exactly the same. This is what Mm. this sort of thing costs. Um, And so (laughs) there's a lot of encouragement there. But um, and what's happened recently is that um, before um, charities used to go, we're, we're, we're not going to support that. And university was like, that's fine because the government basically had a law in that whatever a charity gives, they'll give up to 50% of that on top as well. Oh. Yeah, as, as a way to... As per usual, Dan, the Norways Norway. finds a way to make everything more civilized. You yeah. motherfuckers. That does make it a lot easier. But... but There's as, your answer, Sam. Move to Norway. As Fuck. of last year, they've changed the law and you can no longer do that. So oh, wankers. I was okay. really right, fortunate. I was just being nice to you. Yeah. So I was really fortunate because one of my, one of my grants, which is just finishing up now, was from a private foundation. And they got that additional cost. But as of basically now, anyone else that is on that, uh, so there's a lot of people who were essentially stranded because they got these grants and the government and the university originally agreed, yeah, we're supporting this. But all of a sudden, the government's taking away that additional cost. Um, look, okay, transparency. I think that is interesting in that it would be nice to actually know, even if it was like a ballpark a- a estimate of where things go to. And I think... A lot of people don't realize that sometimes these costs go to supporting other researchers. So a lot of a, a lot of departments have small little funds um, for, for for PhD students, for instance, to to pay you know a couple of thousand to help with your experiment or to go to conferences, and that comes from a big pool, and that big pool is actually contributed by these sort of costs. But if there was actually a overview of where these things went, then I. Th- think there would be less resistance on on, on, on what, what these actual costs are. Um, but um, yeah, I, I wonder whether it's a case of it's just purely not practically possible to actually track where the money's going. Because I think the scenario that you described is, is <laughs> sounds pretty much spot on for a university in that the money's just going everywhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the, one, the one that stands out in my head... Um, the thing that I read, Sam, Google MIT indirect costs, because there's a whole bunch of fuss about this. And I think uh, people at MIT have actually communicated honestly about this. It's going to be difficult to understand. Uh, and you're going to have to learn about shit like uh, how F&A costs work. Depreciation. Um, um, yeah, how uh, how much 
uh, like under recovery, um, like top line gross net things. Um, when I'm working with my local grant person, they do all this stuff and there's all this stuff in this spreadsheet and, I'm, and it's like depreciation. They're like, I'm like, what does this mean? They're like, honestly, it's so complicated. This is just how it is. <laughs> like, right. No, it's not. No, see, here's the thing. It's, it's just that it's not so complicated. It's not. So, I see organizational budgets now. I set them. It's not that fucking complicated. And the other thing is, like, every foundation, every uh, uh, every public company, everyone publishes financial information. Um, the thing that is the thing that's happening here is like, especially when it comes to like, what sounds like like what is what is an indirect cost for me exactly? Why am I paying that much money? Uh, and as I said, the answer is going going probably into this is the total cost of like our F and A bucket, facilities administration bucket. This is the cost of this. This is the cost of this. Clang! This is a hundred million dollars. That's sixty million dollars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, and I think I think it's that MIT article. I can't remember which it was. You'll you'll find it if you look Which which is about how, like I, I I remember really resenting the framing. See if you can find. Oh, I'll tell you what. Here's a good exercise for Hertz listeners. Let's Dan will find this, or you can find it yourself, and let's see if that argument about indirect costs holds up. Because as I said about ten minutes ago, um, the the whole idea of our administrative cost is not fully supported by indirect costs, therefore we're justified by charging a shitload because it's not even as much as we need. Um, in any other circumstance, in, in a company, you know, in a fiscally responsible organization, like the first question would not be, well, why don't we start charging lots of money? You can't just charge lots of money in this circumstance because the government, you'll say, oh, the government, we need 70% indirect costs. The government will say, go fuck yourself, right? That's a formal process in the US. I'm sure it is elsewhere. Um, I think it might be set by the government in Australia. I can't really remember. However, in any fiscally responsible organization, the first thing that would happen is the people who are in any kind of an administrative capacity who ran the fucking joint would say, lower the cost of your overhead. Don't have so much fancy shit because the like the the... Yeah, I mean, this gets into a broader argument about university administration and how that works. Um, because, I mean, it's, it's, if you think about it on like a human level, especially if, if you get a grant right now, everyone's working out of their fucking house doing research on the internet, yeah? You think the immediate indirect cost of that is 30% of the grant? No, fuck off. It's like 2% of the grant, yeah? The shit that you're going to pay for anyway, like your internet and your water and your power and whatever else. Now, these poor wankers still have to keep the buildings together but you're not actually using them. So like I said, there's a way in which it's unknowable. I'd, I'd like to um, I'd like to know if I'm full of shit on this, if there's some uh, dozy functionary out there who's by some miracle is listening to this podcast, which is largely scientists complaining about what dicks they are. Um, yeah, um, I'd like to know if I was wrong, but I, I, strong, I strongly suspect that how this is set up and understood made as an argument of regardless of how much it is it's insufficient um i think that's also there's going to be a dishonesty there like for instance let's say we bring in a hundred million dollars let's say we have a really high indirect cost 50 percent right let's say we bring in a hundred million dollars of research shit and we have a 50 percent indirect cost 
whatever. And the university says, no, actually, it costs us $250 million to keep the whole fucking thing together. Yeah, now you're paying your wages, et cetera, et cetera. So all that money's coming in and we're spending it here to pay wages and whatever, right? And there's another $50 million coming in from the government, but there's a spare $100 million and that's a cost we have to absorb. Wow. The whole point being people wouldn't want to come there and pay their money or wouldn't graduate and get great jobs and make alumni payments or they wouldn't have assets themselves if they didn't have the fancy fucking research in the first place. So it's like when you make an argument like that, you're saying basically – like first order, second order, and third order effects, you just choose the order of effects. It's like in this order, I suppose it's like a second order thing. Like you, you go to the second order and you go, oh, yeah, but if you look at it from a second order perspective, then we're the ones who are getting ripped off by all you fucks working here. Now, that can't really be the case, can it? Because otherwise it wouldn't be a fucking university in the first place. Tell us. Anyway. Tell us. Tell anyway, us if we're wrong. this is like, like every everyone who's uh, listening in to like hear me be rude to you and generally unpleasant is now going. When is he going to shut the fuck up about budgets? Next question. Next question. Here it comes. This is from Renee. Hello, I am Renee Blow. I am a philosophical psychologist from Scotland. Here's my question: Do you think it matters that we? address the mind-body problem in psychology for the world. There it is. Going for the big questions, Renee. Whoa. Uh, incidentally, uh, Renee, I would pay money to hear you narrate just about anything. You, that Your voice is incredibly soothing. It's um, that's so much more relaxing than mine. It's like the opposite voice. The, the, the anti-headers. Yeah. Yeah, that's, oh, okay. That's like, a, yeah, that's like, that's like spring rain, that voice. That's beautiful. <laughs> okay, you can send a question anytime you like, Renee. Um, do, you, do, you, do you want to start with that really rather substantial question, Daniel? <laughs> well, the, the, the mind-body problem is essentially this idea of where or is there an interconnection between the mind or consciousness and our physical bodies or our brains? And this is something that um, people have been tackling since, since people have, have been writing or talking. Whether it's worth actually addressing, I think it raises a large question of how do we actually pick the sort of research that we're doing? One of these, a really interesting debate that's been going on recently um, is... Uh, what do we what do we bother replicating? Yeah, there are so many studies that we can. How the fuck is that relevant? What are you talking about? I'm talking about this idea of where do we spend our research resources. That's what I'm talking about here. Okay. Yeah, I'm just. I'm, I'm not sure how that's related to the differentiation between. Like the, 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 the arguments around the sort of classical Cartesian split of how, how is that related to, you just don't relate everything to replication. What do you, go, no, go no, on, no, go no. on, I'll trust you. Okay, okay. That, 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 that was the first thing that came to mind as to how we choose what we do with that research. And a lot of people would look at the mind-body problem going, um, yeah, maybe, 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 maybe it's not worth investigating because it's not going to bring uh, you know it's, it's not going to bring uh any sort of re rewards in that in that kind of sense so look 
yeah, it's 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 definitely worth investigating for, in in terms of the actual issue itself, and it's something we've been tackling for 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 a long time. But um, I don't know, I don't know. Like, I, honestly, I don't even it's I don't even know what the state of the research is right now. W- what is going on at the moment in terms of of these investigations? Do you know? Um, well, that's that's really difficult to say. This has only ever crossed over with anything I've thought about ever um, within. Obviously, there's like NCC work crosses over to a certain extent with uh, hearty, brain stemmy kind of stuff, which, as you'd be aware, but everyone else might not be aware, was something of an interest of mine for many years uh, for obvious reasons. If you study sort of autonomic correlates and stuff, um, this is and it, yeah, it's an incredibly deep well philosophically, starting with fuck, I don't know, Aristotle, Plato, probably various forms of Eastern philosophy as well. You know, the mind is one, etc. And then going forward through Descartes, Kant, probably all the modern fucks that I don't understand: Popper, Heidegger, whatever. Um, so. How, how does it immediately become apparent? Well, the, the place where it immediately become becomes apparent is obviously in NCC stuff. Uh, neural correlates of consciousness for people who don't read that crap. What is necessary to say someone is conscious in the first place? Because that is that it makes the problem a little bit easier to address because you're talking about a binary rather than the kind of subjective appraisal of something over time but as far as i'm aware i don't i can't think of anything really big that's happened within that area in the last five years but obviously look for neuropsych stuff it's deeply it's deeply relevant um for a lot of visual psychophysical stuff uh because what you're perceiving is very definitely not what's there. I mean, that's where, in a way, you have control over the interface that's relevant to something like that. You know, like I deliberately set this stimulus up this way. It appears to be a different way. Why did I, why did I perceive this thing the wrong way around? So, I mean, it's a, it, it can be a partial crossover at times, but I, I think, I think it still counts. Um, it is such a deep well and that has been happening for such a long period of time i don't have any really good thoughts on how whatever progress we've made into the kind of walk away from dualism which was a really fucking terrible idea in the first place i've always resented descartes um <laughs> Isn't that a great fucking set? I've always resented Descartes. But I mean, come on, man. Come on. Come on. Come on. I mean, if you simultaneously invent like annoying mathematics and annoying philosophy, like and you're and then you're French. <laughs> I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. Don't write me, don't write me angry emails. That is such a hard question. I don't think either of us really have the genuine firepower to be able to engage with that. I would actually have to go into a whole shitload of background reading to try and figure out the best way to answer a question that is that good and that open-ended. Um, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was much better with the policy question, wasn't I? Um, look, but look, here's, 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 here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, 
in general, things like that, especially, especially as you get older, you realize that what you thought was tomfuckery in introductory science, like the history and philosophy of science, the, uh, the, the, the various conceptualizations of people and the mind and progress and humanity that have changed over time. And you hear that when you're 19 and you think, shut the fuck up and show me how the mechanics works. Uh, give it about 20 years. And you, once you've thought your whole way through the mechanics of something like effortlessly, you inevitably come to questions that are related to this. Uh, part of me if I ever got to have my own university, which is a terrible idea for humanity, but I suppose it's within the realm of possibility, I would make a lot of I would make a lot of these questions mandatory for like fourth year undergraduate. Did you ever learn history of science? Oh. Uh, yes, to a degree. Wow, like formally that is you were taught history yep. of science. Yep. Gee. I feel I missed out. Um, well, that's largely. <laughs> I think it was. Yeah, I think I went over for a year in some capacity somewhere, but I think about six months of it was calling Popper a prick. <laughs> I think we just found our episode title there. <laughs> hey, he's dead, so it's fine. This is don't 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 call it. All right, you can call it that. You can call it that. Yeah, you know the worlds of matter, mind, and. Fucking the third one, creation or whatever it is. Yeah. But I mean, I also, I also took, uh, philosophy stuff, but also too young as well. Look, I, I was unreceptive to this at, at 17. I don't know how many people have shared that experience. Um, all it really leaves you with is the kind of like ghosts of where knowledge used to be, where at some point in time it becomes relevant and you're familiar enough with how the knowledge was structured to be able to go and read about it. Uh, in your own time. So all you're really doing is sort of placing down markers for where you might previously later go back and dig. And I don't know if that's the best use of time, really. I, I was exactly the same. I took some philosophy mm. courses in undergrad purely just to fill some credit space, and it, it, it was okay, um, but I wasn't really interested, and I wanted to get into the guts. I wanted to get into the, to the meat and learn about the mechanisms, but it's only maybe the past year or two that I've actually gotten very interested in the history of all this kind of stuff that we've been doing. Um, but, but only now, I don't know. It's, um, I wish I did more. I wish I did yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, so when you're 17 and someone introduces qualia to you, you don't go, oh, that's absolutely fascinating because you don't have the mechanics of the kind yeah. of investigative the investigatory environment into which that is fit you don't understand how the different investigations of what one thing might or might not be in the empirical sense is informed by that idea because you don't fucking know anything empirical yet i mean in the scientific tradition obviously there's people who study other shit yeah so i've always wondered i've always wondered if that was the wrong way around i always felt that um it would have been much, much more use to have taken uh, statistics, experimental design, uh, cognitive psychology, biology, like mechanistic biology courses, um, that kind of shit, like the mechanics of the world, like the Newtonian mechanics 
and the raw mathematical appreciation of how measurement is created and then got to the meaning once there was it feels like to me that that's the substrate and you go, but well, you learn it in ignorance if you don't know the fucking ideas beforehand. Fuck you! The vast majority of it's done in ignorance in the first place. There's plenty. There's plenty of papers where that right now that drive HPS people fucking mad because they're like, yeah, we had that idea 20 years ago. Oh, this is like this crosses over with like what does it actually mean in the first place? And they produce a commentary, and your first reaction is, I've never seen such stupid shit in my life. And then you read it the second time, you go, okay, frank, frankly, they've got a point. Yeah. Um, all the time. It, it feels it feels inside out to me. All of the time. I don't know if that's my manifest ignorance or, you know, just like long marination within the empirical traditions that's at work here. Or it could just be me being idiosyncratic and prick-like. Isn't that essentially the Next US, question. Isn't that, uh, before we go on to that, isn't that essentially the US system where you do that mix of stuff in the humanities? Yes, it's called a liberal arts education and it's becoming really unpopular because you can't get a job with it. Fuck educating people. Um, fuck them actually knowing stuff about the world because we've we've reduced the entire we've reduced the entire college uh, the college function into basically a three year clearinghouse until you can grow up and to become an economic entity. So you don't want to learn about Thomas Aquinas. You might actually know something. Ugh, ugh, ugh Thomas Aquinas. There's Aquinas on the rug. Get the Febreze. Thing, th- th- things seem to be flipping. A lot of universities outside the US are now trying to um, adopt the, the, the liberal education. It's interesting. University of really? Melbourne. Yeah, University of Melbourne did it a couple of years ago. Did they? Uproar. Good on them. Yeah, people were well, they have a, tearing yeah, garments. They, right. They have a, a strong uh, They have a strong HBS tradition at the University of Melbourne, I believe. Yeah. Fiona, uh, there were some Fiona of those people Fiddler. there for, uh, yes, Exactly. Um, and I met some of the other people who were in and around the faculty stuff in what, it was late 2019, I believe. It would have been November or December 2019. Um, yeah, they were, they, were, they were cool. If you're liking what you're hearing, there are a few ways that you can support the work that we do when everything hurts. First, you can throw some of your spare change to us each month, $5 to be exact, and you'll get access to a bonus episode every single month. There's also a $1 tier that will get you access to the Everything Hurts newsletter and the occasional bonus episode. Second, we've got a merch store where we sell hoodies, shirts, and coffee mugs, which is our most popular thing that we sell, so you can tell everyone that you listen to the best science podcast in the world. Third, you can tell your friends about the show by sharing links to episodes on social media. James and I love seeing these posts. The links to our Patreon page and merch store, check out the show notes. We're going to go to our last question. Here it is. Hey, Dan, James. I'm Tane, currently a graduate student in Berlin. Do you think universities should offer intensive teaching courses to PhD students or postdocs that are, you know, kind of mandatory? And or should such training be emphasized more when selecting candidates for faculty positions? My very humble opinion is that just... uh, just as a substantive researcher needs an understanding of statistics to be a competent researcher, they all, they also need an understanding of education science to be a competent teacher. Before we get into the question, I want to ask you, James, how did you find the overall quality of teaching during your undergraduate and postgraduate courses that you did? Uh, variable. Um, 
for masters onwards, for me, research masters onwards, there were no classes at all. It was all research. It was largely me in a room getting angry. Um, before that, uh, as a fourth year uh, Bachelor of Economics technically student, um, when it came to small seminar stuff and open open discussion kinds of format, uh, where there'd be 10, 15 people in the room, um, those were great um, because the feedback was immediate uh, and the discussion could actually be sensibly had. Um, before that, super variable, super variable, uh, and it always it always can be. It always can be, uh, no matter where you go. There's plenty of people who go to faculty, uh, uh, are taught by faculty who have great reputations who go, I hated that, I just bored, I wasn't ready to hear it, etc. It's There's always going to be a strong degree of variability between like what you're available to hear and what's being said. So, I mean, it, it can be, it can be all over the place. Um, certainly there are plenty when when it was common uh in australia 10 15 years ago for a lot of courses to be taught by phd students according to someone else's syllabus certainly there were plenty of people who did, did that who yes i know and i hope you had a command of the material weren't amazingly well, dull you know it's back of the napkin stuff social social psych so you just smiled <laughs> and lied a lot great um, I mean, I taught a whole bunch of different shit, and people were generally quite receptive. I mean, I'd students that give you a little presents Wait, at the end of semester, and you keep in touch with them. Everything, everything, like introductory, uh, cognitive, uh, some stats. Uh, did a whole bunch of guest lectures. I think it's, it's yeah, I mean, just purely on the virtue. I never had any pedagogical training. Uh, and like our Belgian friend here, I am strongly in favor of it simply simply because, I mean, even even if you accept the fact that, uh, uh, that pedagogy may not be, like pedagogical teaching may not be directly necessary to be able to do it properly, um, the vast majority of people who do it for the first time, you could do it for the first year and still feel entirely uncomfortable. But the idea that you have some introduction to it, regardless of whether or not it's within a certain tradition or within a certain theory about how education takes place or how information is retained, about how people relate to each other in groups, regardless of all of that, uh, a lot of these motherfuckers, in my experience, very definitely needed practice. Um, and you could dramatically improve uh, in in a system where you have uh, courses that are taught by PhD students, you could dramatically improve the quality of teaching just by saying before the semester starts, we're going to take uh, a bunch of like half days of the summer holidays or some shit like that, and you need to go through our three or four week intensive actually learn to stand in front of people and convey information properly, actually receive feedback from people who know what they're talking about or whether or not you're doing anything that's, a, that's, that's, that's the right way. You don't have to be loud. You don't have to be gregarious. You don't have to be kind. You don't have to be an asshole. You don't have to be strict. But you do have to convey information effectively through whatever tools you're actually given in the first place. So 
as a PhD student, I might have resented that a little, but I tell you fucking what, I bet you I am 100% certain that if I look back at something like that 10 years later, I'll be like, I'm really glad that someone introduced me to the principles at work behind what I'm doing. And I'm not just relying on being the biggest, loudest motherfucker in the room, which worked fine. I usually got on very well with students and I very much wanted them to know what they were doing. And, you know, it was occasionally really difficult when my life my life was falling to pieces as it often did in my 20s, um, you know. It's like you had the worst morning of your life and you come in and you got three classes straight or, you know. I remember once I had four hours on a Friday from eight o'clock till midday, and then I had to go off and pretend to be a grad student after that. I was often in the pub by four. 8 a.m. on a Friday with Australian undergraduates. Can you imagine the surliness in the room? I really enjoyed teaching. I absolutely loved it. I wish I did more of it. I still keep in touch with a few people that um that i taught over, over twitter or, or, or linkedin and it's great to see they're actually doing a lot of cool stuff uh it was it was a lot of fun and when i did it we only got like a one-day course on how to do it i mean it's better than nothing but your proposal of having a few weeks is obviously ideal i know at least here with it yeah but also 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 you have you have summer it's possible it also means that i mean like people people need the income something something yes but presumably, if they're, they're grad students, like if they're already being supported, and you're trying to keep them for a few years to teach courses that they're interested in, that they think they'll be good at as you start to fit them up. But you only have to do it once. If it's on teaching theory, if it's actually on pedagogy, right? It doesn't have to apply to any given individual topic, no. like what it actually is. Yes? And I honestly, I genuinely believe that if you did that, there would be the kind of thing where you kept your notes and referred to it in later years where you uh, were continually referring to things that you learned. I Honestly, I think it's an experience that a lot of people would lean into. Now, speaking, going back to the question about whether this should be a requirement for positions, at least in a lot of places, it seems the actual story is that they don't care as much if you don't already have that. A lot of these positions say this is a bonus but if you don't have it, you need to demonstrate and do courses and be up to date within two or three years. Um, I've never seen a position, a tenured position, which is which goes, "Hey, we're really interested in teaching, but over the course of the next few years, you have to demonstrate that you're really great at research." It's always the other way around. People, these positions are always mm-hmm. saying, "We want the, the superstar researcher, and uh, oh, if you can do some teaching, that'd be great." And no worries if you, if you can't do it now. Um, you, you've got three years mm-hmm. to, to get up to mm-hmm. speed. Yeah. Well, now we also we also get to my unspoken complaint here. I mean, part of that question is like, you have to learn to do statistics to be a researcher. Like, <laughs> yeah. are you sure you a big fucking chunk of them never <laughs> did? <laughs> also, there's no there's no formal requirement for that. No one ever checks you. I've never submitted a paper anywhere, like now or at any other point in time, where someone goes, are you authorized to send this? Have you got your science union card? Oh, people have gotten thing. on you for being too I mean, young. They, some, sometimes they'll make fun of you for being a, for, for being a graduate student. <laughs> Shout out to Johnny and Edith. <laughs> silly man. Um, but the vast majority of the time, the work is considered on its merits. Yeah. Um, and if it's, you know, if it's unsophisticated or silly or patently ridiculous or inherently problematic, then you fingers crossed it gets thrown out and a lot of it doesn't. So in the sense of uh, there is a way in which when it comes to both teaching and research, 
the center of what things are is fundamentally unregulated. Yeah? The vast majority of teaching stuff goes by student feedback, which is can be – I mean, and that's always going to – imagine be, being like judged over the entirety of a university and you're the poor fuck that has to teach inorganic chemistry. You know, and it's like, oh, you've got a 3.1 out of 5 and everyone teaching abnormal psychology got 4.9. Like, what happened? It's really fucking hard is what happened. And um, most most of them passed and um, we, we we got there in the end and it was it was extremely challenging. And, you know, I, I have people whose personalities are in generally fairly well retrofit to what they're actually taking in the first place. Oh, James, that's particularly unfair. Shut the fuck up. Do you think sports science students are the same as inorganic chemistry students? No, they're not. Uh, you can even tell the difference between, look, I had a class full of pre-med students and I've never felt more anxiety in my life about all the shit that was coming back. It's like the referred anxiety from the kids in the room. Yeah? But like first first year sort of like general introduction to a thing in Australia course is completely different. Yeah? Different between courses, different between uh, – Right. Well, I don't want to lose my temper or anything, but yeah, I mean, this the the, the central idea is also I mean, there's people who've thrived at universities for a million years. Have you ever had someone who's been teaching for twenty years yeah. and they suck at it? You, you think that you think that actually, yeah. and their the the powerpoints are like photocopies of, of their projector. It's <laughs> 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 like, mate, time to time to update your uh, your projectors, image scans, yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, something I don't mind over, I don't mind overhead projectors because you can prepare a template and you can draw on the motherfucker. And I've noticed something really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of memes about like me, an ignorant person, my university lecturer, ah, space math, something, something, something. And one guy called Ranjit on YouTube. He yeah. saved my ass. I love you, Ranjit. And- I love you, man, with a, a strong Bengali accent on YouTube. You're the best human in the whole world. And those motherfuckers explain everything yeah. OHP style. With templates for the more complicated stuff or a blank page with things that they're writing down over time as they work shit out. And that's almost always how they're done. And everyone goes, oh, that was such a good explanation. This guy is like, go find a popular Indian YouTuber explaining maths or engineering concepts and go to the comments. You've never seen more fucking appreciation and the distinct lack of racism and and like the full embrace of internationalism in your life. And yeah. Because people appreciate that shit because those dudes are good. And they explain things in the same template way that we used in the fucking 1970s, except, you know, on a 2021 digital platform and they're probably using a tablet or something like that. There's not a wrong way to put information in front of people. I always liked overhead projectors. The uh, the other to, to use and also to learn off better than blackboards and better than slides. The problem with a blackboard is it's too fucking slow. You're writing big three to four inch letters. Yeah, you don't have any kind of like motor control. You're standing you in front the of the fucking thing. You stand in front of the. You st- yeah, you stand in front of an overhead projector. If you've got the right it's marker, you get you get lovely smooth lines. And you get the ability to, you have all the same abilities to erase stuff and move things around. And then also keep multiple templates. So you can go one page, two page, three page, and then put page one back on exactly the same way. Is it old school? Yes. Does it look a bit manky? Yes. 
Um, but have we suddenly gained so much from the ability to do fucking transition wipes between PowerPoint slides? Eat a dick. No. I really, really don't believe that there's something special about templating information like that. Some lady walks in and gets the overhead projector out and I'm like, she knows her shit. You know what? That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Someone also, because when someone is demonstrating the fact that they're walking through it, there's also a degree of confidence that's there. I will show you how this works. One, two, three, four, five. You're like, I trust her. Uh, I don't know. I think we've shit on PowerPoint in the past before, but it encourages laziness. You've got your templates there, you've got, you got your dot points, and it's very difficult to graphically go through concepts on PowerPoint. But if you have the overhead projector mm. or you've got these new fancy things which, which do essentially the same thing, um, you can and you can explain these concepts, you are going to learn them really well. And that really speaks to why these YouTube channels are so popular. What's that YouTube channel? Is it three, three brown, one blue? You know what I'm talking about? Two, uh, two. Yes, I oh, do. Yeah. Um, what's the guy's name? I think it's Sam yeah. something. Old. Um, Three blue, three yeah, blue, one, one brown. Yeah, and he has his own. No, I've just looked it up. It's Grant Sanderson, not Sam. I don't know. Fucking white people names all sound the same. <laughs> um, yeah, he has his own. I think it's his own JavaScript stuff that is for animating the characters, for handling all of his own animations. And the reason that it works is the choice of the topics and just how unbelievably seamless the ability to visually display everything Calculus fits together. Algebra. And those things is like, and seriously, if you've not heard of uh, Three Blue One Brown, go to the channel and look at how many fucking views there are for things like explaining a neural network, explaining the Fourier Million transform. Points. Yeah, there's a whole series of that. Partial differential equations. Um, uh, there's a whole bunch of shit on deep learning. Some of these, some of these motherfuckers. It's like I, I don't think there's a video there with less than a million views. And not every single one of those is someone going through a course. There's a lot of people going. Uh, like I, I want to know. I, I've heard of differential equations. They seem vaguely relevant to something I'm working on. People are literally viewing this for fun in the same way that they used to do uh, recreational mathematics back in the day when I was confined to like uh, number puzzles and, uh, you know, not, not the sort of more arcane constructions of modern mathematics, but just like simple observations about the like, curiosities within the number system, shit like that. I mean, it's compelling. Obviously, to a certain amount of people, it's compelling. And it is explained in this kind of style. It's just massively updated. And the mechanics that this guy, Grant Anderson, has set up to be able to display that information are top-notch. They're great, great videos. Um, I like some of the harder ones. I really would be super uncomfortable to <laughs> explain the concepts back again. But I mean, I could always go back and rewatch them, can't I? Yeah, it's, and I think that's the style of Khan Academy as well. A lot of the videos from that I don't know much about. Uh, Tell me about same that. sort of stuff. A lot of the videos are um, like the over projector style um, concept. But the, I think the difference there is this goes all the way from like primary school mathematics. And again, time and time again, you get, um, I've, 
been trying, my, my teacher's been trying to teach, teach me this concept for years. I don't understand it. I watched one YouTube video and bam. And the good thing about YouTube is you can find the person which helps, which, which teaches in a way that, that, uh, that you understand the best. Whereas your teacher, you have no choice. But if you're trying to understand like calculus or something, then there's going to be a YouTuber who's going to explain it in a way that you're going to understand really well. And it's great. It's really, really good. Mm. I mean, and, and I mean, that, that's essentially yep. how I retaught myself statistics is YouTube and the internet. It's just amazing. Um, yeah. I, I just don't know what people would have done beforehand. I, I guess you would have gone to your library and gotten a, a real book, that kind of stuff. But these things, they, they, these things are great. And I think now... Yeah, we we never we never we never give it enough credit. So I, I, I'll tell you I'll tell you something interesting about PowerPoint. You know that I've, over a period of years I've complained horribly about uh, using PowerPoint. Um, you've probably seen me give a presentation where my mandatory PowerPoint that I've sent uh, is is a PowerPoint slide that has aerial text on it that says this is my official PowerPoint, and then I've explained things on a blackboard. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, might I, have I seen so, me do that. So. Maybe not. Right um, for business shit where you're not explaining concepts, but you're outlining information and you want the document to stay the same the entire way and you already have the template for being able to put things out and you want to backbone the first 15 to 20 minutes of an hour conversation about making a decision, like state of play, Um, especially when you have to do things like put in graphics from another company, put in graphs, et cetera, et cetera, like conveying information that other people will understand, like shit that you found out, not explaining a concept, not explaining anything that has to work, but just the ability to template shit. Where they just like, you just not learn this stuff. It's these things that you already know or suspect. I'm explaining to you what it is. It's much less annoying because the other thing is they also form enduring resources for other things. Like people come back and make that decision. They think about the thing. You put it on the slide. I mean, in many respects, it's no real, it's not really different to anything except uh, I mean, you can do it with a fucking PDF and go page to page. It's just more of a pain in the ass to set up a PDF. You can do it with any other thing. Like w- I've used OneNote a couple of times, um, just like bunch of text, uh, scroll down, bunch of graphics, scroll down, bunch of text, etc. It's just the fact that it makes easy transitions uh, and the inherent knowledge of the template uh, is something that works for conveying that kind of information. I think it's substantially more ass when it comes to scientific stuff. I think it's less compelling. Um, it's it's much less it's much less good for explaining a process. I wonder whether a lot of lecturers who are doing stuff online have actually thought about getting like a tablet, like a like a Wacom tablet or a drawing tablet, in order to actually do this because you can't really do this with it with a. Um, with a trackpad or something, or with a heaven heaven with a mouse, but mm-hmm. with, a, with a with a tablet or, or, or a writing tablet, you could do yeah with this with a stylus. Yeah, if you well, yeah if you if you're drawing vector graphics, and then you're putting that through an OHP, you should have yeah. lovely clear lines for what you're what you're explaining. It should look good. I think it's I think I've always, I think it's important that you you pay attention to the aesthetics of something like this. I mean, it's just like a, a you know, it's a, I characterize myself as reasonably empirically minded, <laughs> but this, it, it's there is something that's quite drab about trying to learn from a source that is fuck ugly. I, I would not have expected to hear that from you. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting soft in my old age. 
maybe I just spent like too long looking at like what you <laughs> what you're describing, like the, the mimeographed shit from 1985, and then then it's been like scanned. The mimeograph has been scanned and that's been presented digitally, and someone's like, "Look at this grainy pile of shit." And you're like, I really hate that. It's ugly. Um, maybe I'm just getting fussy. No, I, I remember a couple after a pres- you we sat through one of my presentations, and afterwards you gave me a high five and said it was the best thing you ever heard. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> afterwards, you said um, your presentation is too polished and no one's going to take you seriously, and. I, was, I thought that that's interesting. Maybe he's half right. Maybe he's wrong. I thought you were wrong when you said that, but then I've, I've I've thought about that, and a lot of people have said the same sort of thing to that effect. That if it's too polished, no one's going to take you seriously. Oh. yes, Dan. There's a there's a difference. There's a difference between the presence of polish and the absence of fuck ugliness. But also, look. The other thing is, I think you you always had you were more in the biomedical tradition than I ever was when we were working together. And, you know, this is an environment where, like, people people worry about their fonts and wear suits when they present. I mean, shit, I'm lucky if I'm wearing <laughs> fucking pants if I'm presenting something. Yeah, yeah, look, yeah, it, it, is, a, it is a different world. Hey, uh, I, got a, I got a giveaway. Um, this is news. Yeah. Uh, Dave, Dave Grimes wrote a great book. Um, and I know it's great purely as on a matter of faith because I haven't read it yet. Listeners, James James has left his seat. I'm assuming he's getting the book. Hey, so, I brought it. I brought it here with me. It's good, got good thinking. thinking. Yeah, because he's a nice man. He sent me a copy. Now, because I'm a fancy whining fuck, uh, the publisher sent me a second copy without knowing that I'd already got a copy. So I got a copy of Good Thinking to give away to anyone. You don't have to do shit or pay postage or whatever. Just tell me where you live and um, we'll, we'll send it to you. Um, Dave is a good guy and I, I mean, I'm probably super familiar with the content. I'm not in it, which is obviously disappointing the and inappropriate. Heather's comma James. <laughs> no. No, I've. Uh, You've been man. I don't, think it, I don't think it has. I don't think it has an index, and I, I'm I'm being uh, I'm being deliberately vain, Dan. I'm not in it because it's about flawed logic, and obviously minus. We're just going to have first person that contacts us. What, 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 what do you propose? No, no, no. Um, actually, you know what? You're 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 better at you're better at coming up with. Um, you're betting better at coming up with dumb competition oh, ideas dumb competition. than me. I'll put a dumb competition. Twenty-four. So you come up with uh, you come up with what the uh, the competition actually is, and then I'll send it to someone. And this is good. I, li- I live in a place now. The post office is right over the road. You should have it in a few days. How good is that? Good thinking. Yeah. Good. Good thinking. Yeah, good thinking. On, good thinking. On that note, we are going to wrap up today's episode. Thanks for listening. We love you. We're back again very soon. We do.